0: Now we never want to forget the letter we're studying, uh, to whom it was addressed, and the nature of the church in which it was addressed. Uh, this seems kind of redundant because I've given this to you before, but what kind of church did Paul write to? Well. It wouldn't have been a choiceless church that we would accept it because we'd see all of its problems. and We would probably walk away in disgust. But how did Paul see it? How did God see it? That's what we're interested in, and that's what the first Corinthian letter reveals. The church that Paul wrote to was a defiled church. They had sexual immorality drunkenness, worldliness. Now remember, these are people who have come out of the world, and what was the world at Corinth? Here was this little isthmus in the sea there where all the trade ships from east and west found it uh, economical to go through there with their trades. And so there were people from all over the world and what comes with people, philosophies, ideas, religions, that's what's happened to America. We've got all kinds of religions over here trying to rear their head as, as the, uh, uh, the ruling factor as it were. They want to dominate America It was started out Christian. They want to do away with it. And they're doing, doing their best to do it. But here Paul wrote to a church that was a defiled church. They had 17 major problems wrong with them. The first one was division. Uh, So they were, number two, a divided church. There was four parties uh, uh, competing for the leadership there in Corinth. Now if there's anything that will divide the church, it's it's division. I mean, that's that's the bad thing. If it's got sin in it, that can be taken care of because the membership will listen and they will repent and you can correct it. But Peter uh, when when there's division in the church, one puffed up against another. Uh, you remember first the first chapter. Paul began with that division in chapter one, verse ten. He says, uh, I hear that there's divisions among you. Uh, one says I'm a Paul. Another one says I'm a Paulus. Another a Cephas and another Christ. And he went right into it. They listen, the church isn't built on men. It's built on the Lord Jesus Christ because he said, did Paul die for you? Is that why you're so stupid to call yourself after Paul? I'm merely one who plants... That's what he'll get to later in his letter. And Apollos is merely one who come along and watered. We all have our part in building the church, but don't ever think of men above that which is written. And Paul will tell them all of that in the first four chapters. And so here's a divided church, a defiled church, and a disgraced church because they're hindering the progress of the gospel. That's what happens with these kind of problems who wants to become a member of a church that has all these things wrong with it. But these people come out of idolatry, immorality to the nth degree. And uh, what is it that saves a person? Is it the blood of Christ or is it your goodness? Well, we know the answer, don't we? It's the blood of Christ. And when do you contact the blood? Baptistry in the baptistry. Revelation one five, along with uh, as we've seen many times before, uh, and Acts twenty two sixteen. Peter or John, excuse me. John wrote about uh, the blood of Christ in Revelation one five. He praised him because it's the blood of Christ that washes away sins. And that's very clear. And everybody agrees to that. The Baptists, they agree to that. Oh yeah, absolutely, it's the blood of Christ. But they don't see no need to be baptized. But they got a problem because when Saul of Tarsus was on his road to Damascus uh, to persecute Christians, God struck him off his mouth, blinded him. And he cried out in wonderment, Who art thou, Lord? He recognized he was a master, so he said, Who are you? He said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecuted. Because you see, when Paul persecuted the church, what is the church? The body, of the body of Christ. Yes. And so Paul immediately believed. He said, Well, Lord, what would you have me to do? He said, go into Damascus, and there it'll be told what you must do. And so God arranges for Ananias to go talk to him. What did Ananias tell him? Acts 22, 16. Arise, and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, or appealing to his authority. That's what calling on the name of the Lord means. And so here... uh, From Revelation 1.5, it tells you what washes away sins. Acts 22.16 tells you when you contact the blood that washes away sins in the baptistry. So you don't have a contradiction in scripture. Uh, You don't don't have confusion in scripture. Revelation tells you the what washes away sins. Acts 22.16 tells you when. The wind that they're washed away. Uh, I believe that's very cardinal for us to understand. Here, the Corinthians have been baptized, they've obeyed the gospel, but they got all kinds of problems. You ever adopt any kids out of an orphanage? They got all kinds of problems. But when you adopt them, they're yours, aren't they? They're as good as being born into your family, and because you love them, you graciously and tenderly, over a period of time, you work with them, and you develop them, and you teach them, and you train them, and you bring them out of those bad ways, don't you? That's what God has done with Corinth. That's what he does with us. So, when do you become a child of God? Well, we're not going to go into all the Scriptures. I just want to bring your attention to it. When we're born again, and that birth is in the baptistry. When we're adopted, as the Scriptures talk about, the adoption in the baptistry. When faith leads us to obedience in the baptistry, there's where Paul said in Romans 6, 3-6, through there's two men, the old man and the new man. Because Paul told those Corinthians in Romans, uh, those Christians in Romans, in, in, in Rome, where he wrote the Roman letter. He said in verse 6, verse 3, Know ye not, don't you know, that as many of you as are baptized into Christ were baptized into His death, and therefore we're buried with Him in baptism, like unto death we're buried, we raised to walk in newness of life. Newness of life, we're raised. And so we die in the baptistry, theoretically, don't we? Not literally, but theoretically. And that's what Paul says. He says in verse 7, I think it is, he says, knowing this, oh, what I need to know about my baptism? He says the old man was crucified there. Who was the old man? That was me in my former life before the baptistry, before I was born into God's family by baptism based on my belief. And so labeled across my forehead was damned and doomed in the eyes of God. He saw me as damned and doomed until I was born into his family. And so Paul says, knowing this, the old man died there and a new man raised. Oh! (laughs) You mean I raised out of there a new man? Yes. In what nature am I new? that I'm to walk in newness of life. And so I'm to learn and to grow and to develop in God's family as He will teach me and lead me. And that brings up 1 John 1, 7, doesn't it? John said, if we walk in the light, as He's in the light, talking about God and me. If I walk in the light, as He's in the light, I have fellowship with God. Do I have sin? The last of that verse guarantees it because it says and as I'm walking with God as he's teaching me and learning me along the way of life and purging out these terrible things like he's going to work on Corinth here uh, uh, they uh, as I'm walking with him I need to know and feel assured that I'm his son and he assures me of that all the way through and so did he with the Corinthians. The first nine verses, he tells them how blessed they are. How did Paul address his letter to the church of God at Corinth? He didn't write down there with human wisdom and say, Boy, you're about to ugliest people. How can you claim to be the church of God? Here they got 17 serious problems. And Paul said, You are the church of God. You are the called of God. You're the sanctified of God. These are words he used in the first nine verses. He tells them how blessed they are. They have all things that God has to give them. They have all the wisdom that God has to give them. They're not using it, but they got it. And so, and and they have the guarantee that God will see each one of them through to the day of judgment. As you read in other places, he is the one who will not allow us to be tempted above that we're able to bear. He's the one that uh, revives us again, like you read in the Psalms. David was the great, one of the great psalmists, and that was his prayer, Lord revive me, because as he faced the troubles uh, in his life, and particularly as being king over Israel, uh, he suffered many shameful things. He was a murderer and an adulterer with Bathsheba. And uh, in his repentance and things, he asked the Lord to restore uh, a right heart in him and forgive him and blot out his sin. But what did he say about his sin? It's ever before me. You and I know what kind of rascals we are, don't we? I do. Maybe you don't want to admit it, but I will. I don't see any good thing living in me, except what, except Christ. And so, with that kind of an attitude, uh, that's why we sing such songs as, oh, bend to the rock, let me fly, and the rock is higher than I and when we come together, we've even got a song in our book that states the fact of the case, revive us again. It's only the Lord that can assure us of our sonship, of his love for us, that's willing to take the ugliness of somebody like me, like you, if I can permit it to say that, and bring us to what he wants us to be. we we'll never be perfect, but we're not saved by our works, are we? No. Anyway, here's the Corinthian church that Paul writes to. He established it. We've seen that in the book of Acts, beginning in the 16th chapter and going through the 19th chapter. He established it. And now he writes a letter back to it because he's heard some things about the nature of the people. Uh, There's a picture of the church that he writes to. And yet, they were a defended church verse 4-9. through nine. They were recipients of God's grace, which means salvation. They were rich in knowledge that God had for them. He gave them everything that they needed and everything that He had to give them. They lacked no gift of God. Uh, they were to be blameless in judgment because God would see them through to that day. And they were in fellowship with Christ. And so, every time we gather till to, to we finish studying 1 Corinthians, we need to remember that how ugly this church really is because of the fact of that Isthmus where all them ships, trade ships went east and west through there. And so all their people was kind of like people in New York. Uh, it's kind of a world trade center where people converse from all over the world. And all of the ideas and the philosophies and the religions of the world converge there. And there's other places like that. I think San Francisco could be named one, and uh, Seattle, places like that. They're steeped in idolatry, worse than Benton City or places that we know, you know. But still and all, here is a church that God loves. God is sending this message through Paul. God chose Paul to go to the Gentiles. These are Gentiles. God chose him to write this letter. And as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17, all scripture, and that's what we're reading in 1 Corinthians, all scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness to the intent that the man of God is thoroughly furnished unto all good works. He's complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so when we read the Corinthian letter, we're reading God's chastisement of a very a church that has all kinds of problems, but they're very dear to God because they're his children, his family. And all he ever asked for them, of them, was that they humble themselves before him place themselves in his hand that's what Peter said in one statement in 1 Peter 5 verse 6 he said humble yourself under the mighty hand of God like a knight that comes forth before the king and bends a knee before the king and offers his sword and his life in service to that king that's the picture that's being presented there Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. It's going to take a little while to exalt some of us, isn't it? Maybe all of us. But all along the way, we're 100% a child of God. If one of these members was to die before Paul wrote this letter with all these problems, his destination's heaven because he's a child of God. You ever had a child in your family die? He didn't know anything, uh, probably had a lot of, maybe you spoiled him, he had a lot of problems, I don't know, but he was your family, and he still is with his problems. And you're willing to work with him problems, ain't you? He's your brother, your sister. And mom and dad will hurt anybody that would even think of <laughs> depriving or hurting one of their children. That's God with us. Who's the one that invented fatherhood or brought it it into existence? God did. Genesis 3. He established the home as the most important government in the world. And it is. Because as goes the home, so goes the nation. You want to know how important women are? The hand... Rocking the cradle rules the world. But it's scary when you look at the hands rocking the cradle today, isn't it? It's scary. But still, in all, the world goes by the power and the dignified work and position that God gave woman. Now, this is the kind of church we're looking at. Keep that in mind. So the first thing Paul done, or the first thing God had Paul do, in the first chapter, in the first nine verses, he had the Apostle Paul write to this church and tell them how great they are in the eyes of God. You ever pick up a little baby that's stupid, They don't know anything yet? He's he's on his way to learning. It don't take him long to learn, though, does it? I'm amazed as the older I get, I see these little grandchildren of mine and how smart they are, one, two, three years old. (laughs) And so you take a little child in your arms, he's very precious, but he's ignorant of a lot of things that he needs to learn. He's gonna learn a lot of them by being spanked. He's gonna learn a lot of them by tears of his own hurt. But he's gonna learn, because that's what life is. And it isn't too pleasant. Life is not pleasant. The Bible don't lie to you. The writer says it's a fearful, uh, it's a sore travail. It's a sore travail that God has put man to here on the earth to be exercised thereby. It isn't pleasant, but is it for our good? Well, tell a soldier that before he goes into combat. He's ignorant about a lot of things about combat. He'd never been in combat before. And they're fixing to send him over in World War II, Korea, one of them bad wars where they killed him by the thousands in one day. And you tell that boy, what was boot camp to you? Oh, it was a sore travail that the government put us to, to be exercised thereby. And that's what this life is, so travail. We face problems we don't want to face. We face difficulties and all of that. And we do our best because we've got, we've got a rock to lean on, don't we? We have the wisdom of God. We have the assurance of God. We have the love of God. We have the direction that God gives us. The assurances. Like Romans 8 and verse 31 says, it merely states what all of the Bible says in many ways. It asks the question, since God is for us, and he is, who or what can be against us? He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? We're God's elect. Corinth was God's elect. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies Who's going to condemn us? Don't you know it's Christ that died for the condemned? Oh, Paul said we're more than conquerors through him that loved us and gave himself for us. Well, you know the rest of it. And so that's the kind of church we're studying about. And so Paul first builds them up and lets them know how precious they are in the sight of God and then he's ready to give him a spanking. You don't give a child a spanking until you show him how precious he really is. My dad used to show how precious I was because he'd say, son, dad don't like to whoop you. It hurts me, as worse than it does you. And I got to think, how's that dad? I don't quite understand that last statement there because it hurts, but it was for my good. And so Hebrews 12, verse 5, I think it is, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son. If you endure chastening and scourging, then you're a son of God, but if you don't, you're a bastard, the scripture says. And we know what the word bastard means. In this case, you cannot claim God as your father if you won't listen to him. But if you'll listen to him, you can walk hand in hand and. Every day and every way. And he's there to wipe the tears away. He's there to assure you once again of danger, that there is no danger when you walk with God. Because since God is for us, who are what can be against us? And so it's a very beautiful picture when you look at it, but we need to understand the nature of the church that Paul wrote to in Corinth. Ugly, ugly, but God loves them. I've told you before about a friend of mine that adopted a little boy down in Florida, and the boy he chose was the worst, meanest, uh, ugliest little boy in the whole group. and And he was required to study them children for a week before he made a choice, and he chose the worst. And the commandant of the of the orphanage. He asked that fellow, that friend of mine said, why did you choose that boy? That's the worst boy we got here. He said, that's exactly why I chose him because he needs a father. He needs a father. He took the boy home and the boy had been in so many homes uh, uh, that had took him back to the orphanage because of his meanness and badness and the little boy done something, I don't know what it was, but the father and the mother called him downstairs from his room and they began to talk to him about his problem. And as he come down the stairs, he had his suitcase packed because in his life's experience at seven years old, he'd been kicked out of many homes because he was a bad boy. And you know, they set that boy down and they made him read the adoption papers one more time. They said, what is your name there? That's our name. And they had to assure him that regardless of whether he wound up in the penitentiary or what happened to him, they would be grieved, but they would always love him, and he would always be their son. And you know after that, that boy quit wetting the bed he quit throwing up for no reason. You ever seen little children do that? I have, because they're neurotic, they're neurosis. They they don't know where they stand in life. I told you about the little boy in Florida. That he was seven years old, and he'd been so abused, misused by the man that he thought was his father, and it really was just a live-in of his mother's and the little boy one night had been tortured so much not physically but mentally that he looked at who he thought was his father and he said I don't want to live anymore. He found no love. You know we, we can't live without that. And God is love. First John 3 verse 7 isn't it? And that little boy told him I don't want to live anymore. And that old man it came out in a trial, and his wife testified to it that he told the little boy, "Good, get out of our life. go ahead and die, and get out, get away from. Him. We don't like you anyway." And that night, the little boy died. And they buried him outside the cabin, down there in the swamp. When the prosecuting attorney uh, had the body exhumed. When they found out about it, they said there was no reason for biologically for death. The little boy died of a broken heart because nobody loved him. And so God assures Colin that he's they're dearly loved with all of their mess and their problems, and he's willing to get step in there with gingerly and tenderly and lead them out of those bad habits and bad ways. That's the way God deals with people. That's the church we're seeing. So, tonight we're in chapter (laughs) 2. Verse 1. Now I want you to know that Paul's going to deal, right up here on the board you can see it, chapter 2 verse 1 through 5 uh, the fact that what he preaches is not resting on man's wisdom there's men who stand in the pool pit with great educations and great pedigrees behind them and they pump out bull that yeah it has an effect it can bring people uh, to uh, Tears and one thing or another, but it's human wisdom. It's not God wisdom. And Paul's going to make a point about this. And he's going to show that this division has no place in the church because we're all fools for Christ. And so he's going to talk about uh, the fact that uh, the, the local body is not resting on man's wisdom, but on the revelation of God himself. And he's going to talk about uh, uh, the fact that we're comforted and confronted with the mind of God. We don't need the mind of man to interfere. That's where confusion starts, and that's where division starts, and that's where false religion starts. The prophets came with a message that said, Thus saith the Lord. Or another way, they would say, now hear the word of the Lord. You don't hear that much anymore nowadays, but that's the way they started. They didn't make any bones about it. They weren't preaching man's wisdom, man's philosophy. They weren't preaching what seems to be logical to men because he's already showed in chapter 1 the latter part that the reason we're called fools is because In the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom did not know God, and it pleased God by the foolishness of the thing preached to save them to believe. And you and I, because we believe in a crucified Savior, to the Jew, Paul said it was a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it's foolishness. We've already studied that last week, but keep those things in mind as we go into chapter 2, because... Now he's going to be dealing with how he came to him and the nature of the message he came with and the fact that he didn't come to him with human wisdom. The pulpit in the Lord's church has no place for human wisdom. Its only position is the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord. So, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul said, when I came to you, brothers... and I want to stop right there because notice he uses that word brothers over and over and over again. Now, if you ever find yourself in a position of preaching to a group of people or dealing with a brother that has a problem, how do you want to address him? As a brother. As a putting yourself in his same arena you can get away with that can't you he'll listen to you won't he but if you put yourself as an uppity above him you're going to get nowhere and so Paul does that chapter 1 verse 10 he says I appeal to you brothers verse 26 brothers chapter 2 verse 1 brothers what does that word say What does it say to you? It says basically that you and I are the same. We're brothers. Paul identifies with them. In fact, Paul declared himself to be the chief of sinners. And that's why God's grace is shining so bright in his life because of his admittance to being the chief of sinners. Incidentally, If you think you're the chief of sinners, remember Paul was inspired and he said he was the chief, so you're going to have to take second place. Just a point to be observed there. And so Paul just identifies himself with sinners. And if you do that, you'll have an audience as preachers of the gospel. But you make yourself better than they are, and they won't stay long. You run them off. Only fools attract fools. Wise men never do. Verse one When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with excellency of uh, uh, eloquence or superior wisdom. Could have, because when you study about Paul, uh, he was a very highly educated man. Otherwise, he had no right to say that, did he? But he was noted uh, for that among the Jews, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. And so, that's the nature of his coming to him. Verse two. He says, for I resolve, in other words, I determined, uh, I made a resolute charge to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's powerful tense there, and we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, but notice... And he determined when he came there to know nothing save Jesus Christ and crucified. Have you listened to these preachers on television? They know nothing but what money. You listen to them? I can't help but turn and see how stupid and ridiculous they really are, and what the charlatans they are. They don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ; they serve their own bellies. So Paul made this determination now uh, there in verse 2 he says for I determined uh, to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified now that's a perfect tense we'll look at that verse 3 he said I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling and so much that God had to tell Paul don't be afraid I've got much people in this city. And so he gave Paul a command. Don't be afraid and give him a reason not to because I've got much people in this city. Turn over to Acts, the 18th chapter, and I want to read verse 9 and 10. Because this affirms what Paul said about him coming to him in weakness and in fear. That was the nature of his coming. Now Luke records the traveling of the apostles here. And look what he says in verse... Uh, well, I ain't even over there yet. chapter 18, verse 9 and 10. Uh, then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision when the Lord tell him, Be not afraid. Was he afraid? Well, the Lord thought he was. He was, would not he? Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. Don't hold back. Tell them how it is. Tell, Preach the gospel to them. Here's why. Verse 10. God said, for I, I am with thee. And if God's with you, you don't have any fear, do you? I mean, if God assures you that He's going to be with you. Has He assured us of that? Yeah. So we have nothing to fear, do we? But fear itself. For I am with thee, and no man shall sit on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. Much people? Much people? What kind of people were they? We just saw what kind they were. They've been baptized and they're now God's children. But boy, do they have problems. So can the church at Benton City have people with problems? And can't we love them? And can't we work with them? And do our best out of love to try to redeem them from those matters? But if anywhere in their life during that process of redemption... From those things, when they die, they're God's. They belong to God. They're God's family. When one of our people die, one of our children, we don't. We would take it an insult if our last name was not put on that tombstone. Here lies Jimmy Dean Howard. That was the name of my my brother that died when he was a little boy. He was a Howard, he was my brother. Honoury little guy, (laughs) ignorant of a lot of things, but my brother. I always liked that uh, picture they had uh, back before you guys were even born. In World War II, there was a picture of a little boy all tattered and torn and barefooted, walking down a gravel road carrying his little brother and the caption said isn't he heavy and it said no he's my brother when we have love like that for one another and we sing about it don't we we sing that song bind us together Lord bind us together what's going to bind us together love is the cement the mortar it binds us together. And so here Paul was fearful for his own life when he went to Corinth. And he reminds him of that here. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. But the Lord assured him to much people there. Uh, so so uh, he gave Paul a command. And in verse 4, uh, because he had much people there. Verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Oh, now here's where the rubber meets the road. If a man comes to Benton City to take advantage of this group, he's going to come and use all the shrewdness of men, the wise and chosen words and phrases and terms. He's not going to speak the Bible. He's going to come with human wisdom and reasoning and the logic of men. Well, it was the logic and reason of men who looked upon the cross as shameful. Whoever heard of a deliverer dying on a cross to deliver people? It didn't meet human wisdom. But hasn't Paul already told him in chapter 1 that God chose the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty? And he chose the uh, What was the other? What? Bush. Okay. (laughs) God chose everything different than what man would have chosen. When you come to God, you come His way. You don't come your way. In fact, if you had pedigree that big, PhD and all of the things that education has to offer. When you come to God, you've got to reduce that as though you were in kindergarten, because you haven't learned anything yet. Because God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the things that are wise and mighty. And He chose the weak things of the world. There we go. To confound the, the, the strength of this world. So, look deeper than the surface because there's where God chose. And Paul's made that known. And now he's going to go in with these people to show them that Christianity is not a matter of having some great preacher that uh, can speak with the eloquence of angels. That's generally what a congregation is looking for and they're looking in the wrong place. Let me tell you the story once again. About an eldership of a congregation that was looking for a preacher, and there was four preachers that uh, applied for the job. And the wise elders told them, "said We want all four of you, one at a time, to get up and preach on hell." The first three were young men with pedigrees from college. The last preacher was an old man that stumbled on his words. He had no eloquence of speech, none of that. And after they heard him speak, the, the elders hired the old man. And the congregation was pretty upset about it. They said, why why did you hire that old man that stumbled on his words and when we could have had one of them polished preachers that spoke with the voice of angels. And the elders said, well, them first three preached hell as though they were glad that men were going there. And that old man preached hell with tears in his eyes, afraid somebody might. And that made the difference. And so the pulpit has no place for the eloquence of man. And that's what Paul's telling them. When I come to you, (laughs) <laughs> it was, uh, I could have because of my education, my pedigree, because the Jews recognized he had the top-notch education. Uh, so he was noted among the Jews. He says, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. Uh, verse 2, For uh, where are we at? Uh, verse 4. My message and my preaching was not with wise and persuasive words. Uh, and anybody that reads Romans and he wrote knows it could have been wise and persuasive words, couldn't it? Let me tell you something about the book of Romans that you probably don't know. Romans, the book of Romans is taught in the higher institutes of learning around the world not for its religious content but for the wisdom of how he addressed the subject matter because Paul in his wisdom that God gave him builds a tree and he builds branches out this way and out that way of different ideas that all build that tree and bring forth the beauty of the tree that God would build that God did build in his preaching And so the book of Romans is taught for its logic and its reason. Its ability to persuade in argumentation. Now, but he said, I came with demonstration of Spirit's power. Now, why did he do that? Why did Paul choose it that way? He said, "So that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power." And so we preach God's power, not man's wisdom. It don't look very powerful for a man to die on a cross to save him. the whole world, does it? Because when he died, what did he do? He saved the whole world, but in that world was only those who wanted to be saved. Because we studied Romans. We do that on Sunday night. We studied Romans, the third chapter, how that when Christ died at Calvary, He died for what? The sin problem. He died for every sin from Adam and Eve to the end of the world. Your grandchildren's sins. Your great-grandchildren's sins had already been paid for. Sin is paid for and the only way you benefit from it is when you answer the call of the gospel because Jesus said except a man repent Luke 13 you'll all likewise perish he also said in John 6 verse uh, where it's at now verse 33 uh, I'm the way the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father but by me. And so salvation is a matter of man's faith. But it's available because Jesus died for the sins of the world. There's not a sin that's ever been committed. It's not already paid for. The ones in the future is already paid for. But a man's got to come to the baptistry for the old man to die. That We talked about in Romans 6, 3-6. And the new man to raise to walk in newness of life. Uh, why did Paul choose it that way? He said in the text, so that your faith might not rest in man's wisdom but in God's power. He didn't do it to show off or because he had to, he did it so they would know where to boast. Where is is boasting. It's only in God and our salvation. It's not in self. We have no word of the boast within ourselves. I don't care how good you might think you are. I don't care what altitude you might think that you've arrived at. Our dependency will always be on God. The reason He sent the Son is because we could not answer to the law. The law condemned us, and He delivered us from that, didn't He? So Paul did it so they would know where their strength was. It's in God, it's not in man. It's not in, uh, So Paul could have blown them away at what he had learned at the College of Tarsus, because that's where he went to school. Tarsus trained the teachers for the rest of the world, and Paul was unparalleled in the wisdom and the knowledge of the world be the Gentile world or the Jewish world, he was recognized as being very astute in that knowledge. And that's why God chose him as an apostle, so that when when he gave it all up, he could tell you the way to get there is to give up all you know. And so when you come to God, you give up all you know, and you let him train you and teach you. And you find out you don't know nothing about life. About the living of life. About the joy of life. You don't have yet until God gives it to you through the word. You don't know about the joy that the Bible speaks of. That is beyond understanding. The peace that passes all understanding. And the joy that's unspeakable. That you can have in Christ. They can get ready to take your head off and you're not gonna like it, you're not gonna enjoy it necessarily, but you have a confidence and an affirmation from God that you're His. You don't have anything to worry about. You just got a discharge from a wearisome battlefield, that's all, and you're going home. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? When I was in Korea, I hated that place. I hated those people. I shouldn't have, but I did. I held them accused and accountable for me having to be over there in that muck and mud. The one thing I lived for, the one thing I dreamed of, was my discharge. And one day it came, the colonel said, Merle, your time is up. It's time you went home. You can't imagine how happy that made me be because I knew about America. I left here going over there. We've never been to heaven. But we sing how beautiful it must be. It'll be in fellowship with the one that created this universe, with the wisdom to create all things. He's the one to give us life, breath, and all things as Paul told the Athenian philosophers. In Acts 17 seventeenth chapter, he told them about the God that they ignorantly worshipped. He said he's the creator of all things. And he's the one he's the only one that can bring peace and happiness to mankind. Anyway, our time is up. Uh, so that's why God chose him as an apostle, so that when he gave up, gave it all up, because he said he gave it all up in Philippians three and verse eight, and he counted all things that he knew and is as, as dung. Now we know what that word dung is, don't we? Uh, I know it's uh, it's a word that we gasp at if somebody says it but it's the word shit. (laughs) Now, I knew that would shock everybody because we got these words, that what do we call them? Uh, What Mm. is it we say about these words? Politically incorrect. Politically incorrect. And I've explained that to you before and I'll do it one more time. Suppose you go to the doctor and he says, well, Mr. Howard, you have a problem with your anus. Nobody's offended at that. Are you offended? But you go out on a construction job where I worked all my life, and you go in a lunchroom, and one of your fitter friends will tell you in all honesty, man, you got a problem with your asshole. Now, what's the difference? Do you you see a difference? But asshole is a word that, oh my goodness, uh, we don't say that. Maybe there's some reasoning to being kosher in regard to that, I don't know. But what's the difference? What if it was kookamonga? You got a problem with your kookamonga. Does that offend you? It's just a sounding. Well, anyhow, take that and run with it for once. <laughs> I don't mean to be crude, but we need to get over this nonsense And some words uh, are, uh, if we keep labeling words they are politically incorrect, pretty soon we're going to be like what they presented us as being years ago, as cavemen. We're going to be going around and we won't be able to talk to nobody. It's nonsense. And there's nothing wrong with the word nigger. Doesn't mean a man's prejudiced. It's a sounding. I bought a can of paint and I looked on the back of it and it was black paint, and it said nigger. Nigger paint. Nothing wrong with that. But boy, how did we, oh, man, we don't want to hear that word. So we need to get over this nonsense, and we need it. Even our government is learning right now that we're going too far with this politically correct nonsense. Anyway. So in Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul said, uh, he kind of has done what he learned in the colleges and stuff and he give it up to come to, to the Lord. His rejoicing was in the Lord. So, that's a good place for me to stop. Now, if I made anybody upset, I didn't mean to. But I think I'm speaking the truth. It's about time we become mature adults and recognize the stupidity that's amongst us in the political arena. There's people that's decided to destroy America, and part of it is with this political correct nonsense and labeling everybody as prejudice. What is today? The 18th. try to begin there some uh, next week thank you for listening to me do we have